welcome to the first saltier politics of 2022. Julie, how you doing? Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> Getting ready for World War Three. How are you doing? Um, I'm okay. New job at CNN Plus is a go. It's been busy. It's been a lot, but the news has been absolutely crazy and certainly keeping me nonstop. <laughs> Have you guys launched? Not yet. Um, not till not for like another month. Um, but we also before we get into World War Three, I'd like to talk about your amazing news about your puppy, because yes, my little puppy, he's so cute. Um, we adopted a little puppy called Hagrid, um, who came with that name. We decided to keep it because my son really wanted to keep it because, as you know, Hagrid is a character from Harry Potter, which I had completely forgotten about. Um, but he loved the name and he doesn't look anything like a Hagrid. He's not fat and he's not huge. He's kind of a skinny little puppy. Um, but he came up from Mississippi. He was a little rescue because they, um, he was in a kill shelter and he was a baby along with his brothers and sisters. And they were all named, they were all H names. Like there was a Hermione, there was a, yeah, there was a Harry, <laughs> they were all Harry Potter H names. So we got Hagrid and he's so cute. He's such a good boy. How has it been adapting to life with a dog? Because I know you had one previously, but. Well, I have my Grimace, who, as you know, was the love of my life um, and always will be. But uh, it's great. I mean, he's not he's he's not little. So the funny thing is we thought we were getting a lab um, or at least a lab mix because he looks like a lab. And then we decided to do a DNA test at the vet, which I didn't know you could even do just to see how big he was going to get. Mm-hmm. And the DNA test came back and there's not one iota of lab in him. It's so bizarre. He's like part Schnauzer, part um, Staffordshire Terrier, part Beagle, part Yorkie, which was bizarre, um, part a bunch of other things. And when you combine them all into one, he looks like a lab, but he's not a lab, which is so very, very interesting to me at least. But he is also kind of a little slutty. He just stands on street corners and waits for people to come up to him and tell him how cute he is and give him treats. Like he literally just stands there waiting for like the next person to come up. And So and what you're saying him. is he's a millennial woman. <laughs> I don't know about women. <laughs> he's, he's a millennial. I, of course, would never criticize millennials, but no. um, he certainly has those characteristics, yes. Okay, indeed. Um, okay, well, that is, let's start with that really good news because, I mean, honestly, Julie, I just wanted to hear what your opinions are it, we're going into day seven of the invasion of Ukraine. It's pretty grim, but I mean, what are your reactions? How is this? Do you think, do you see an end in sight, really? I don't think there's an end in sight um, because for a number of reasons. One is I don't think Putin's going to take his marbles and go home um, voluntarily in the sense that he's not going to just say, well, we've had this incredible loss of life and an occupation of Ukraine would take 20, 30, 40, 50 years if we even bend them to our will, which probably will never happen. Um, so why don't we just pack it up and go home? Uh, he's not going to do that. He's just not. And what that portends for Ukraine is obviously awful bloodshed and, and death, um, not just for Ukraine, but also for Russian soldiers who I think truly believed they were going to be greeted as liberators by their fellow Slavic brethren. <laughs> And then they get across the border and see this incredibly brave and, and, and amazing resistance by just regular people against their occupation. And they're like, this isn't what we signed up for. What are we doing here? Um, 
the Ukrainian economy shot, the Russian economy shot, and there's no end in sight. And I'm, I hate to say this, and I know it sounds depressing, but there will be no end in sight as long as Putin's in power. And the only people that can get Putin out of power, if they even can, are these oligarchs who he has been enriching, who've been enriching him in turn for the last 30, 20 years. And, um, and unless they all get together and realize that he is bad for business, or as my uh, grad school professor used to call it when talking about the Russian economy, economy business, which is different than business. It's kind of an oligarch uh, under the table way of doing business. But um, when he, when the, if they realize that and if they're able to coalesce and get rid of him, that's the only way to, to make this go away. Otherwise, one man is going to take down not just, you know, Eastern Europe, but I think it's going to spill over, obviously, into other um, parts of the parts of Eastern Europe and certainly other parts of Europe, if not, if not further. What would you say about the figure of Zelensky? Are you surprised that he's just getting right on the front lines, right in with people? Because, I mean, I would say he is commanding and chiefing here. Yeah, I mean, he's incredible. And I think what's fascinating is let's not forget, this is the same guy who came into office a few years ago during the Trump administration and begged the United States for military aid. He knew this was coming. Any Russian observers knew this was coming, and I can get into why in a second. But uh, and in return, he was basically told that unless in that quote unquote perfect phone call, that unless he dug up dirt on Hunter Biden, he was not going to get anything. If you remember, Congress had to basically override the president and provide the aid to Ukraine that Ukraine was asking for. And for a, a man who was an actor um, and a comedian his whole life to have that as your first foreign policy experience when you're caught in a vice between what you know is going to be Russian aggression, because it already happened. Don't forget, before Trump came along, disgracefully under Obama, we didn't really do much. Uh, in 2014, Putin annexed Crimea and, and, and put as he called, not Russian soldiers, but we all knew we were unmarked Russian soldiers into the Donbass, into the eastern part of Ukraine. So for, for a man to come into that kind of situation, to be caught in that kind of vice, and then to have to contend with what he's contending now is just unthinkable. I mean, it's it's a mess that just is, is almost unimaginable. So I have a lot of respect for him for, for nothing more than sticking with his people, for nothing more than galvanizing his people, for nothing more than acting as a figurehead for his people in ways that I think are so critical during World War II. It uh, was so critical, sorry, during World War II for Churchill to have done that. I skipped my thought here. But it's so critical now um, in the midst of war as well. What do you think are some nuances that maybe American observers who don't really understand Russian politics or the mindset that they may be overlooking during this crisis? Well, you have to understand Russians and not just Russians, Ukrainians, that part of the world is very used to being under siege. You know, when we think of World War II, we think of it as a kind of a distant thing that happened in Europe and kind of not on our, obviously not on our shores except for Hawaii during during Pearl Harbor, but there was no fighting, prolonged fighting in the United States. And we think of it as a historical event. Whereas 
Russians, and not just Russians, but I'm sure Ukrainians, and I'm sure certainly the Poles and others, don't think of it as a far-off event. Um, when I grew up, so I was born in 1973, which is hard to believe was was less than 30 years after the end of World War II, although obviously it seems like it was much longer. But in the large scheme of things, I grew up closer to the end of World War II than we are now to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which is really amazing. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid, the war was everywhere. I mean, and I think about this. I mean, I was a little kid and the war was everywhere. You saw combat veterans without legs and without arms. You saw um, uh, tanks, German tanks that were still outside Moscow that were just stopped outside Moscow. I mean, it was everywhere. And this notion of we're constantly under siege was very, very present. My parents, who my dad was born right before the end of the war, my mom was born the year after the war ended, and they took German. They were forced to take German in school. It was just because they assumed the Germans were coming back. They assumed that this was not over. And there's this constant sense, I think at least for my generation, which is Generation X over there, and certainly for baby boomers, I'm not sure about millennials because I don't know any Russian millennials, but um, for for them that this is just constant. And for them, Ukraine is, to the people that Putin's been able to convince, this is yet another attack on our way of life, which is so absurd. I mean, it's literally gaslighting, you know, it's like Putin lighting. It's Gaslighting doesn't begin to des- describe what's really happening. I mean, it's the Ukrainians who are basically being run over and, and occupied and everything that Putin is accusing the Ukrainians of doing to Russia, Russia is doing to the Ukrainians. But never- word denazifying the region. I mean, yeah, I mean, denazify, by the way, Zelensky is Jewish. Right. By the way, Putin bombed uh, Bobby Yar yesterday. So Bobby Yar, I don't know that most people know about what Bobby Yar is, but if you're from that part of the world like I am, you certainly know what Bobby Yar is. Bobby Yar was a ravine in Kiev, which I guess was then on the outskirts of Kiev. And in 1941, when the German troops marched into Ukraine, into Kiev, they told all the Jews of Kiev to report to this ravine that they were going to be transported to, to work camps or whatever excuse they, they got them to all report there. And they were told to strip and they were all shot to death. And he wiped out the entire, virtually the entire Jewish population of Kiev, 33,000 people in the span of two days, a hundred thousand people died of Babi by the time the war was over four years later. And there is a memorial at Babi Yar now, which the Soviets never put up. Did you say 100,000? 100,000. Yep. It was okay. a ravine. It was literally a ravine um, okay. on the outskirts of the city. And uh, the Soviets never put up a memorial to Babi Yar because the Soviets had this, first of all, incredibly anti-Semitic, but also these are all Putin's predecessors. These are the people that Putin emulated and thinks, you know, the destruction of the Soviet Union is the saddest, saddest thing that ever happened. The worst geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century was not the Holocaust in his mind. It was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So think about that mentality to begin with. But the Soviet authorities, of which Putin was one uh, as a KGB agent, never put up a memorial to the Jews of Babi Yar. 
they would not do it because they did not want to single out Jews as having suffered any more than anybody else. It was basically like, well, everybody suffered during World War II, so why should we commemorate this horrible slaughter of, of Kiev's Jews? And I wanted to stress the Ukrainian Jewish population before the war was, I think, the second or third largest in, in either in the world or in Europe. I forgot where, but it was tremendous and it was entirely decimated, much like the Polish um, Jewish population was decimated. I mean, huge cultural um, a huge cultural history going back centuries and just decimated really within the, within two days and certainly within four years. So finally, after World War II ends, uh, sorry, after the Cold War ends, the Ukrainians as an independent nation now put up a, 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 a monument to Bobby Yar. And yesterday, Putin ordered that that monument be bombed. So who's the Nazi here? A million percent, because you're also erasing a horrible history, like a history, and that is Nazi 101. Yeah, but who's the Nazi here? Putin. Of course. But I mean, it's not, it's not really a rhetorical question. But I right. mean, um, so, but, but again, the way Russians win wars, it's the way they won wars against Napoleon, who I, I think everybody could agree was, was a much more brilliant uh, military strategist uh, than the Russians, than certainly than even um, Marshal Zhukov, who was the the big uh, Russian general marshal during during um, that time. But uh, you know, Napoleon and Hitler uh, and, and Hitler they lost in Russia. Really, Napoleon lost because of the Russian winter, but but they both lost in Russia because there's just so many Russians that are willing to be sacrificed. Or maybe they're not willing to be sacrificed, but the government is willing to sacrifice. The loss of life is not that important to the regime. It never has been. And so when you put people in the meat grinder, there's just more people to put in the meat grinder than other countries have. That's extremely grim, but it's It's extremely true. grim, and that's why I feel horrible dread for the Ukrainians because it will not stop. He does not care how many of his own people he loses. It's just attrition. At this he point. Does, it's attrition. It's a war of attrition and Russia just has, you know, is bigger than Ukraine. And there is only one way for this to end. And that is if Putin's own oligarchs and his own security services and his own elites understand that he is bad for business. They're not, moral about it. It's not like they're watching this thinking, oh my God, you know, how, how could this happen? They watched this all happen in, in Chechnya when he raised Grozny, the capital, the regional capital of Chechnya. I mean, the, the blood on his hands is amazing when he used polonium to kill uh, Russians on British soil. And, and I mean, I, I don't know if you remember the last president of Ukraine that he did that to. I mean, it's just awful, awful, awful. And Ultimately, um, there's just nothing that's going to morally stop them. The only thing that's going to stop them is, I think, what the West is finally doing, which is if it becomes expensive for them. Right. I think even the, the Western companies like Ma Ma Visa and MasterCard um, taking action in Apple and, and different things but, like that, but it's too. Beyond that. But it's beyond that because Visa okay. and MasterCard – they're taking action against regular Russian citizens who are really suffering as a result of this. Okay. I'm talking about asset seizures that the West should have. And that means, I mean, President Biden said this in his State of the State, State of the Union yesterday, 
I don't know exactly what, I don't know exactly what he means by this, but I think it's very important to do the following. You have to go after their hidden wealth and their wealth is all hidden in the West. It is tied up in Western real estate, whether in London or in New York or in Switzerland or in the South of France or in Paris or, you know, you name it. Uh, it is going after their proxies because nothing is in their name. <laughs> there are all these shell companies set up by law firms and LOCs in the Virgin Islands, the British Virgin Islands or in Panama or in Cyprus. Uh, and they're all very convoluted and complicated. I hope our intelligence services know where they are and who these people are. But you have to seize their assets, not just freeze them. You have to seize them. Um and revoke their visas and revoke their visas, not just for them, but revoke visas for their wives and their ex-wives who sometimes have become their ex-wives so they could shelter their income uh, and their mistresses and their children who are all studying in Western schools and send them back, send them back to Russia, send them back to Moscow. It's a beautiful city. So St. Petersburg, they can spend the rest of their lives there spending whatever money they have on whatever Russian goods they can buy at this point. But that's the only way to get rid of Putin because he's being propped up by these oligarchs. And until you make it expensive for them to operate, then nothing's going to happen. Nothing is going to happen. It has to be a level of economic warfare that we, I don't think, levied enough in the wake of the bin Laden family's <laughs> relationships right. with us and people who were potentially tied to Osama bin Laden um, that we have to do here. And it's harder because it's, it's more than just one or two people. I mean, it's a, it's a large group of people. What, I guess, what should, you know, the general population here in the U S like what advice or like, what would you say for us to be looking at and watching for? Is it, it's the money thing. It's how much can the, the West really like squeeze when it comes to that to help most? Cause it's not going to be us sending troops. Biden reiterated he's not. No, and by the way, we don't need to send troops. Right. I don't think we do need to send troops because then you really start World War Three. I mean, are we really gonna have troops fighting now across the border from Russia? I mean that's that's crazy so right. far. I mean, check back in with me later, but right now I think that's insane. I mean, this is the twenty first century. The way you fight these things, especially for a kleptocracy, which is all that Russia is is by hitting Putin in his pocketbook. It has to be him directly and not just him, but his people, um, his enablers, all of whom are in the West. I mean, they literally, their, their yachts, from what I understand, are still parked, or were as of last week, parked, some were parked in Barcelona. Now, some, are, I think, are moving over to the Maldives because you'd be happy to hear this, Emily. I know you <laughs> went there too long ago. There's no extradition a treaty between them and anybody else, I think, so nobody could seize the yachts there. Okay. Um, but to the extent that there is, there are assets like apartments, like um, houses, like villas in the south of France, like airplanes, they if they're not back in Russian waters or Russian airspace, you have to take them. Right. You have to take them. And and I believe laws exist to do this because we obviously did this in the wake of 9-11 uh, when we felt the need to. So there are ways to do this. The question is, are, are we willing to go that far? I don't know how tied up these oligarchs are. 
with, I mean, it's fascinating. You have uh, a guy named Alexander Lebed, who was a former KGB agent, um, kind of pretended he was a little bit of a uh, Democrat with a small D back in the day, but then now is one of the richest men in the world. He, you don't become that way unless you're tight with Putin. His son owns a chain of British newspapers and sits in the House of Lords. And he was put in the House of Lords on the list to sit in the House of Lords by Boris Johnson. And he's Lord Lebed of, I think, of Knightsbridge in Siberia. I mean, it's like completely a weird, I don't know if it's Knightsbridge, but of, of some British <laughs> piece of land and Siberia. Like the right. Queen's right to, you know, make somebody Lord of Siberia. But anyway, what's interesting about this is that Boris Johnson was urged not to do this, that it could be potentially a security risk. He went ahead and did it anyway against the advice of, I think, his own intelligence services. And then lo and behold, of course, when Boris Johnson, before he became prime minister, this guy is to throw extravagant, insane parties that Boris Johnson used to go to all the time. They're social friends. I mean, that's what I mean about, you know, Roman Abramovich, who is one of the biggest oligarchs, people think he's Putin's banker, just now put up the Chelsea football team, which is one of the biggest, obviously, Premier League um, soccer teams, for sale, but he owned Chelsea and, <laughs> you know, completely tied into um, society there. I think after 2014, he kind of, the British were not so great about treating him well, but until then he was perfectly accepted. And that's just one example. I mean, Oleg Deripaska, if you remember <laughs> the go between between Paul Manafort um, and, and, and Putin, I guess, or whoever, um, uh, he was representing at the time, but he, you know, incredibly entrenched. And after 2014, after he was sanctioned, um, turned over his properties in New York, rented them out to Roman Abramovich's now ex-wife. Then she, Roman Abramovich, got divorced, and Abramovich gave her 90 million dollars worth of Russian of of New York City real estate, three or four adjacent townhouses in the East 60s on the Upper East Side. So it's absolutely entrenched in, in just the fabric of culture and society. Yeah. And look, I don't know her. I'm sure maybe she's lovely. Maybe she's opposed to all of this. But this money is blood money. Let's be really clear. This money is money that was looted from the Russian people. It is money derived from Rosneft, which is the Russian um, oil company. It is money derived from Gazprom, which is the Russian gas company. It is money derived from aluminum companies that are, that are that, that's, that's Russian proper. I mean public property. These are all Russian commodities that these oligarchs have completely looted and have bought their way onto the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and have bought their way onto, um, you know, into British society, into the House of Lords. I mean, are you kidding me? Right. I didn't know that. I... Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's there in plain sight. It's not like, you know, I have some top secret intelligence <laughs> briefing on this stuff. It's, it's right. insane. And it's, it's right there. And, uh, you know, everybody page six once in a while, I remember, I think it was page six, but, but one of these, you know, tabloid, um, celebrity things would be like, Oh, there's Roman Abramovich's yacht parked at St. Bart's for Christmas. He's throwing, you know, a big party at St. Bart's for Christmas along with Jay-Z, you know, Jay-Z, but I'm mentioning like celebrities who party on the boat with him. And it was like, oh, okay, no problem. Right. But who do they think is financing or, or being better yet financed? By all of this blood and all of this loss of life. Right. 
so you're absolutely right. It is the money that's going to speak, but it's also the people who need to not accept and do more due diligence before letting them onto a board at a high society thing within Western culture. Well, uh, you know, look, whatever money talks and money will always talk. The part that I think is, is interesting is how far is our government willing to go? How far are the Swiss willing to go? I mean, the Swiss have basically said, okay, we're going to sanction, I think it's 137, you know, these people on these, these oligarch lists. But what does that mean? Right? Like, are you going to go so far as to be able to, I don't know if they can, um, according to Swiss law, but are you going to seize their Swiss chalets? They all have ski chalets in Switzerland, in the Swiss Alps. If you're the French, are you going to seize their villas in the south of France? If you're Spain, are you going to seize their, their yachts that are docked in Barcelona? Um, if you're Britain, are you going to seize their apartments in Belgravia and, and Mayfair? And, and, you know, if you're the Americans, are you going to seize their apartments on, on the, upper, you know, the Upper East Side and the Upper East Side or on West 57th Street? Right. And so on and so forth. I mean, it's it's consistent. I mean, I hate to say this, and this is not even anti-Donald Trump, but like we know, because Trump has said it, who owns apartments in, in Trump Tower. A huge cross-section of Russians. Russian oligarchs. Are we going to seize that property? I mean, we should. Exactly. It's going to cost Donald Trump some money. But we should. Right. Because that will be the only thing, again, like you said, to get Putin out of power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just saw, as we're talking, that the... um, Alistair Ismatov, who's one of the people sanctioned by the EU, one of the oligarchs, um, the Germans just seized his boat, his yacht, which is valued at $600 million in Hamburg. It's a 512-foot... The kind of wealth, though, like you said, is just absolutely could buy a small country and could feed most of every country. Yeah. And, I mean, you think about... You think about what these Ukrainians are going through on the border, the fact that the men can't come if they're of any kind of fighting age. So it's women and children, and they're all trying to flee across the Polish border. And I can say this as a refugee. I've been completely just crying. I mean, uh, you know, as the people I live with, they'll tell you I've been inconsolable. And I'm not really a big crier typically, but I've been inconsolable the last three or four nights watching these kids because I've been there. I've been a refugee. Watching these kids with their absolutely terrified mothers with a suitcase, pulling a suitcase, walking across the Polish border. Are you kidding me? Like this is what's happening in 2022 in Europe. And and this is the thing that's going to impact these children for their entire lives. This, whether this, this last seven days or 700 days, it's, this is going to be imprinted on the, on these children and these families forever. Yeah, and I'm, you know, hopefully my mother is not going to listen to this uh, pod, but I have reached out to a few NGOs to see if I could go over to Poland and work um, with these kids for for a little while. I mean, I have my own kid, so I can't go for too long, but, you know. Understanding the toll. Well, you know, understanding what it's like. I mean, I'll tell you, when, when we went through this experience, we ended up, the first place we ended up was, I think I told you this, was in Austria. And I haven't thought about this woman in a long time, but I've been thinking about her consistently, like nonstop over the last few days. Um, So we landed in Vienna and we didn't obviously 
you know, I looked at my parents and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> they don't know many. <laughs> they just look terrified like I did. And you kind of, you realize at a very young age that your parents don't know everything, which is something a child should never realize at that kind of a young age. And that's exactly what these kids are now starting to see. They're starting to see their mothers crying and their mothers not in control of the situation. And it is traumatic. And I will never forget that look at my parents' face when that happened. But anyway, there was a woman named, all I remember is her first name. Her name was Gerlinda. I have no idea who she was or how she came into our lives. But she spoke, she was Austrian, but she spoke Russian. And she kind of just, I wouldn't, you know, figuratively took us by the hand. And just was like, okay, now you're going to go here. And now you're going to, like, I'm going to show you, like, I didn't know what yogurt was. She was like, this is yogurt. It's got strawberries in it. You can mix it together. Like, things like that that you just, and the Ukrainians obviously aren't in this situation. They're not, you know, living behind the Iron Curtain. They're, they're very westernized. But nevertheless, it was so comforting to have somebody from the West speak to me in my language who also could speak German and, um, and just kind of help us get around for lack of a better word. And I thought about this and I thought, okay, I actually have no discernible skills when it comes to medical attention that they might need or anything else. I certainly have never um, worked with refugees, but I do speak Russian. Um, it turns out after listening to Ukrainian the last week, I understand Ukrainian pretty well. It's, it's, it's very similar to Russian, just a couple of different ways to pronounce the words. Um, these kids are all, from what I can tell, all Russian speakers. Um, a lot of them are from the, from the part of Ukraine that borders Russia, where you have a lot of Russian speakers anyway. And I was like, well, what if I went to the refugee camps in Poland, if somebody will take me for a week or two and just be that person to these kids that this woman, Gerlinda, was to me when I was little? And so if anybody listening has any way of figuring out how I could do that, I've reached out to Doctors Without Borders. I've reached out to, to you know, every, every possible organ as well as to members of Congress who know a little bit about this, who are investigating for me. But I'm hoping, um, if this doesn't kill my parents, that I can do this in the next couple of weeks because I, I just am incredibly, incredibly distraught about what yeah. I'm seeing and it's bringing back a lot of, bringing back a lot of PTSD that I did not even realize I had 40 years later. That's true. So. If anybody who is listening to this will tweet us to help. Please. Yeah. Yeah. If anybody knows anything um, or any way for me to get hooked up um, with any of these organizations, understanding that again, I have no medical training or any other useful training whatsoever. Um, but, uh, but I do speak a couple of these languages and it would be, I think, comforting for these kids to have somebody there who's just focusing on them and helping them acclimate and just, you know, understanding that they are probably most terrified by the fact that their parents are terrified. That's probably, the, not probably, at least for me, that was the scariest part, that your parents are not in control of a situation. I don't, I don't yeah. even think this week we need to say what we're salty about because it's clear what we are. Um, Unless you have anything else that you're salty about, because this whole thing no, is just No, I mean, the only, thing I'm salty, the only thing I'm salty about is, um, is that I think the West is not moving as strongly against these oligarchs yet as they, as they will. But look, it's been less than 24 hours since, since Biden announced that he would. Frankly, 
I think we should have done this in 2014. I think Obama failed miserably. And I remember saying so at the time on Fox, which they loved, um, but failed miserably uh, on Ukraine back in 14 and not slapping these people with sanctions and creating a, a, a worldwide sanctions list the way that the Biden administration obviously has. I think they can go further and hopefully they will. I think that, and I think that's a great insight. And I think also just, again, like have working in news, it's like sometimes you lose sight of this human aspect. And I really think it's important for people to hear, like, for example, what you went through and in, in, in the toll, that extra toll that's being taken. Cause you see explosions, you see videos of that, but this emotional and like psychological toll is really important. I think for people to keep in mind as this is happening. Yeah. I think people need to keep these kids in their thoughts, these families in their thoughts, um, as they should for Syrian refugees and others. I remember getting a lot of flack for that back in the day. Um, but listen, if you feel sorry for Ukrainian refugees and you don't feel sorry for Syrian refugees, that's only because you might be racist. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, they should also bear in mind the people of Russia who I have to say, you know, I have grandparents who finally left there, but, but were not able to leave for a long time. And I keep thinking if they were still alive and they were still there now, um, they'd be very, very old by now. <laughs> but if this were, this were 30 years ago when they were in their eighties or their seventies, um, as a lot of these Russian pension years are, they would be starving to death right now. The ruble is valued at less than, I believe, less than a cent at the moment. Um, no way to access food, no way to access money, no way to leave the country anymore to, to see their family, their families living abroad, no way to receive money um, from their family, their families abroad, and all because of one man all because of Vladimir Putin. And I, I just want people to, to bear in mind, because I also remember the hatred towards Russians during the Cold War, which I lived through and being called a commie <laughs> very often when I first came here in the 1980s. And uh, I think it's very important to bear in mind that these people are probably as victimized by, by Putin as, as anybody in the world and, and it's important to bear them in mind too and, and to wish them the best while understanding that the people who are really in charge which are the oligarchs and the elites must for the sake of their own people for the sake of their country for the sake of their own pocketbook because i don't think they really care about their country or or, or their fellow russians um get rid of this guy he can go to his dacha i think that that is the note um i think we need to we'll definitely be back uh, soon within the next week or two to talk more about this. Julie, the insights that you've given are very fantastic and everybody should listen to this and also help if they have any insights on to how you can help and how we all can help. Thanks, Sam. All right. Talk to you soon, right, Julie. Talk to you. Bye.